This red carpet season, enjoy the award-winning entertainment you love with AT&T's Unlimited and More Premium Plan. Go to att.com slash unlimited to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly. We're taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards. I'm your host, Shana Naomi Crockmall. I'm the digital director at EW, and I'm joined this week by Joey Nolfi, who's a writer with EW who's been covering awards season. Welcome, Joey. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. That This podcast is part of our comprehensive awards coverage in the magazine, online at EW.com. This week, we're going to talk about the Directors Guild Awards, which happened this past Saturday, who's performing at the Oscars, and then we're digging into a few of the categories that recognize what's called below-the-line talent. Not the main cast or directors or writers, but in particular, we're going to look at cinematography and film editing, and we will hear from two very accomplished, very talented women who are nominated for Oscars in costume design, Ruth Carter and Sandy Powell. Joey, let's talk about Directors guilds, uh, not yes. that the awards were on Saturday, <laughs> not that there's that much of a question who is the front runner for this award at the Oscars, but um, Alfonso Cuaron continued his victory lap on Saturday night. Uh, Roma won Best Feature Film, uh, beating out Bradley Cooper for Stars Born, Peter Farrelly for Green Book, Adam McKay for Vice, Spike Lee for Black Klansman. Uh, there were a couple of folks who weren't nominated for DGAs who are up for the Oscars, Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favorite, and Pavel Pavlikowski for Cold War. Um, but overall, I think this wasn't too much of a surprise, right? Anything in here that you were surprised by? No, I mean, you know, Alfonso has now sort of won both industry and critical favor, which definitely puts him out front. And, you know, the Academy has such a history of, of loving Alfonso, as we all do. Um, he's usually very hands-on all over his films. I mean, he previously won uh, for directing Gravity and also editing Gravity, mm -hmm. so the Academy knows very much how passionate he is um, and how much literal craft work goes into his projects. So I think they're going to give him another trophy here and, you know, predicted by the DGA. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think, you know, we'll see. You never know. But uh, <laughs> this of any of the categories, I think, actually, is the one that seems the most likely. Um, it was also interesting to see eighth grade director Bo Burnham won for first time feature film. Yeah. Um, there were some really good things in that category. It awkwardly or sort of painfully meant that Bradley Cooper lost twice because he was also nominated <laughs> in this category, as was Boots Riley for Sorry to Bother You, Matthew Heineman for A Private War. Um, I thought eighth grade was amazing. It's interesting. I like that the DGA has this extra category to nominate the first timers so that it doesn't all get completely conflated into, um, you know, congratulations on being a good director versus the kind of like more body of work kind of nomination. Um, so that was good to see. And, you know, we also saw a couple of the other folks whose names we've been hearing. Adam McKay did not win for Vice, but he did win on the television side for a dramatic series with HBO's Succession. Um, and I think continuing a trend that uh, our colleague Pia wrote about last year, we a bunch of actors kind of in the in this conversation. Ben Stiller also won for directing of a TV movie or limited series for Escape at Dannemora, um, which beat out uh, Jean-Marc Vallée for Sharp, Object, Sharp Objects, which I was a little surprised to see actually. Um, and Bill Hader won for <laughs> directing uh, an episode of Barry, uh, which means he also beat out Donald Glover, who was nominated for an episode of Atlanta. Um, wow. What's your, are there any actors you would like to see direct who we haven't seen or, <laughs> or get recognized? I would have loved to see uh, Regina King's name in here, actually. Oh, as yeah, that would one who's great. doing both. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, I, I, I don't know if there's anybody off the top of my head that I would like to see direct. Maybe Meryl Streep. What would a Meryl Streep directed movie look sure. like? Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think, you know, uh, actors know how to direct actors. And I think that's why um, they do such a good job directing. Um, they really know how to speak to actors and get great performances out of them. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's why you see that so much here. And the industry people who are voting on these things know that. They're really in tune with the craft and what a director can do um, with their cast. So 
uh, yeah, I think that's why we keep seeing it. But I just wish the same was, uh, you know, could be said for female actors that sort of do that mm -hmm. uh, and direct films. Like, I mean, Barbara Streisand, Angelina Jolie have mm -hmm. continually been short shrifted, I guess, mm -hmm. um, at the Oscars. So, um, yeah, I just wish that we could see that same transition for women um, as we do for men. Yeah, especially since there are a number of women who are working on the episodic side on television, mm -hmm. but like looking to see that body of work get to grow and to fill more. Um, so the DGAs, that was kind of like the last of, of the, you know, we've kind of like been picking our way through a lot of these smaller, not that they are unimportant, but, you know, often seen sort of as signposts for what's going to happen at the Oscars. We're getting closer to the Oscars. The Oscars, what is actually going to happen during the broadcast still continues to be <laughs> a very large question mark, which I felt like Big last week, mark. last week got kind of weird. Like the Academy rolled out in this very teasy way on Twitter, some, you know, reveals about who was going to be performing, which turns out the answer is everyone who is nominated for best song is going to be perform, or it seems like is going to be performing. So we will get to see Jennifer Hudson sing I'll Fight, which is the theme song to the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, RBG. Um, which is exciting. Always love to see Jennifer Hudson on stage. Um, she was last seen on the Oscar stage singing I Can't Let Go during the In Memoriam segment in 2015. Um, at, but great to get to hear her sing, you know, again for this. Um, it's a little yeah, I... unclear still who is going to be singing the place where the lost things go from Mary Poppins Returns. The Academy tweeted it would be a surprise special guest. Uh, I don't have any idea what that means. And I feel like anyone who says they do, I'm just not sure. Like, why wouldn't it be Emily Blunt? I don't think Julie Andrews has, I mean, I would be so happy if it turned out that Julie Andrews had miraculously <laughs> recovered her ability to sing. That would be an amazing gift to all of us. So I guess I secretly hope that's what's happening, but I don't think that's what's happening. So I mean, I would love to see that too, but I mean, <laughs> I am, as we all know, I am on the RuPaul's Drag Race beat here. So I am all here for an Emily Blunt lip sync if she would just sure. wants to lip sync through the whole sure. thing. That would be great. I mean, I'd love to hear any number of people saying, I don't know why. I mean, I think they are trying very hard to find some surprises that we should be looking forward to. Um, it's not surprising that, you know, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper are going to be performing Shallow. We already got a preview of that during her concert. Um, so I think, you know, that sounds good. It seems like Kendrick Lamar and Zizza are going to sing All the Stars. That would be great. Gillian Welch and David Rawlings will perform their song from Ballad of Buster Scruggs, even though I don't think they actually performed it in the verse. They wrote it. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I hope that these are interesting. You know, there's been some different reporting about how long these performances will be. They might all now be truncated 90 second versions since they're getting all five. Um, I think that would be unfortunate. See, like, they're all great songs. It would be great to hear them in a longer version rather than a medley. Mm. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, Gaga and uh, Bradley, I think it came out last year that they were uh, talking about doing some sort of unorthodox, I think was the quote, performance for it. Um, so I don't know if we'll get to see that. I think everybody was really looking forward to that. But even if it's, you know, just 90 seconds, I think each of these performers have enough to make it work within that that time span, um, you know, because as we saw it at Gaga's Enigma show uh, last week with them performing, I mean, if it's just the two of them staring into each other's eyes over a piano. That's fine. I mean, for, for 90, 90 seconds. seconds that's, take enough. It. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> what would qualify as unorthodox for Lady Gaga? I just feel like that is a word that encompasses <laughs> so much of her career. Um, I guess we could see. Maybe Bradley Cooper will do it in drag. That would be unorthodox. And you know what? I... the spirit of the film. Yeah, I did when I interviewed Shangela for her appearance in A Star Is Born. She was saying that she uh, would love to take Bradley as her uh, drag sister, I think. So, I mean, drag Bradley Cooper, I'm all here for it. That would qualify. I, I'd be up for that. Um, <laughs> yes. There was a, a report in Variety that Queen had declined um, cool. a request to play an opening number for the broadcast, which I have to say, I feel like Queen has performed on a number of different things. So it was kind of surprising to me that this was not something that they might do. Um, although I feel like it would be kind of an obvious grab, but no Queen. I guess then they would really have to figure out who was going to sing with them for that. And if Rami was going to do that live, that would that would be a whole hornet's nest to open 
I guess. Yeah, I think some of the controversy has a little bit to do with that decision. If you know, I, I'm not sure. I can't really speak too much to that. I know none of us know, but uh, I, I'm guessing the controversy surrounding the film maybe has um, a little yeah. bit to do with that. Yeah, I think we'll see. Um, you know, and then the Academy announced uh, that the LA Philharmonic is going to play during the In Memoriam yeah. segment. I, I am baffled by this entire broadcast. Like, I don't want to say <laughs> there's no chance that it's going to be as exciting as we all want it to be, but I am a little confused how they're going to get from, either this is going to be like the best kept secret and series of secrets in Oscar broadcast history of like just one amazing, dazzling musical surprise after another, or I'm confused. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not as upset about the abbreviated performances and all of this news because, you know, I think that the show gets a lot of flack every year for being too long and drawn out. And when the Academy, you know, makes attempts to sort of, you know, play with things that could increase viewership by trimming performances and experimenting with how they're rolling the show out in other ways, I think a lot of people jump on them for it. But I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing because we, we have no idea what they have planned. So I think... Um, You're being maybe very generous. That's nice. No, no. I <laughs> mean, I like. I think everyone is in favor of the Oscars, like trimming some of the fat and moving a little more quickly. But I'm thinking even ahead to this weekend's Grammys, right? Which is sort of flip flop the opposite. It's like almost all like performances, but it makes it. It has the potential to make it a more enjoyable show, you know. Um, and and but yeah, I don't know. It's a lot to figure yeah. out how to solve. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. Um, I mean, and if it's bad, then we can just critique it and say, okay, don't do this again next year. <laughs> so, That's true. Uh, Here's, here, it will be a, like, I do, you know, I think we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast and um, Chris and Baldwin and Lynette Rice, who we work with, wrote a great piece about, like, why do you need a host? And I feel like they've convinced me we don't really need a host, but it yeah. does, it, it raises all of these other questions around what exactly is going to happen. Um, mm. So, I mean... Good suspense. I hope the payoff is there. <laughs> you want it to be dramatic. It's the Academy Awards. We want it to be dramatic. Yeah. Like not so yeah, dramatic every year that like something wrong gets announced and it's like a huge shock. Like that's that doesn't have to happen every year, but a little bit of surprise is good. Um, so I guess we'll keep our fingers crossed for the unpredictable to win out. Yep. So Joey, uh, I'm really excited that you could join us today because I know how passionate you are in talking about some of the other categories who, that we don't dig into and we haven't really spent a ton of time on yet except sort of mentioning in passion. So tell me a little bit about why, why you are so inspired by getting into some of these more technical categories or below the line categories. What about that is, um, why is that a focus for you? Well, I, you know, these categories really showcase, I think, the scope of literally everything that goes into a movie. Um, you know, obviously, audiences connect with the front facing element of movies, you know, the actors, the directors, but below the line categories are the, you know, the essential technical building blocks. I mean, the Academy is made up of different branches. You have cinematographers, editors, designers. So these categories really represent the skilled craftspeople who bring every element of a movie literally into the frame um, that the actors and directors, you know, just get to, to play in. And it's a lot of technical skill and, you know, honing a specific craft over many years and um, to make something as simple as like, you know, uh, like a chair an actor sits on in the frame or the decor in a character's home look really natural and effortless and something that you don't really notice just because it transitions you very seamlessly into the world of the movie. So I think it's really important that we recognize that too. I really appreciate that. One of my favorite things actually about living in Los Angeles and going to see films in Los Angeles is that you, and I, I, when I lived in New York, I didn't see this happen as much. I feel like it speaks to kind of how LA is a company town in many ways, filled with many of those crafts people you're talking about, is how many people, especially in the opening weekend of a film, will stay all the way through the credits, not because there's some amazing like Marvel credits reveal scene, but because they stay and cheer for their friends whose names are in the credits. Like no matter how yeah. far down they are, no matter which <laughs> like, you know, group of 400 animators worked on something, it is like a really common thing to have happen in Los Angeles and it makes me happy every time. Um, even if I don't know anyone who worked on a 
film just to know that like someone out there is waiting for their friend who worked very hard on something <laughs> and their name is in there somewhere and they are going to cheer for it. Um, yeah. so it's great. Yeah. Um, they do work so hard. I mean, they, I used to work at a shoe store back in Pittsburgh and there was, you know, you just run into people in random places. Like there was a costume designer for, I think it was the movie, the road, um, with, I think Viggo Mortensen, mm -hmm. do you remember that movie? Mm -hmm. And she just strolled into the shoe store. She was like, I'm looking for old ugly shoes that I can cut up. And it's like, these people go out and they do so much that is outside of a movie set. There's so much research and so much uh, backstory that goes into what they do. So um, yeah, they deserve all the credit they can get. Let's talk about cinematography, which is sort of yeah. the showiest of these categories in some ways, because it's really what you, you see through so much of the film. Um, a lot of good nominees, this year we have Cold War, The Favorite, Never Look Away, Roma, A Star Is Born. Uh, you've talked to some of these people, and I know you've looked at it. Which of those really stand out to you? So first, uh, the one that I love—it's—it's I, it's hard for me to pick between three of them. Uh, the Favorite, Roma, and A Star Is Born are my three favorites in this category. And The Favorite. Um, particularly, I think the fisheye lens is just so odd and entrancing because Yorgos and Robbie, they're, they're Robbie Ryan, the nominated cinematographer, um, are, they're very peculiar filmmakers that sort of um, here, I think, are begging us to question literally what we're seeing. I mean, the fisheye lens is sort of plopped in the center of the action mm -hmm. like a fly on the wall mm -hmm. as these women are moving around. And I think they really want us to question the proximity and closeness because the film is about proximity versus intimacy and, and power in terms of how these women um, are either bonding or pushing away from each other. Um, so I think it's a good example of a cinematographer not only creating stunning images to look at, but those images really complementing theme. Um, and then with Roma, you know, Alfonso, again, he did his own cinematography mm -hmm. here, and I think that it makes the story feel so intimate and personal and just the contrast between those bookend shots of Cleo, you know, watching away the dog droppings at the beginning and the water with the uh, shots of her going into the ocean mm -hmm. at the end and confronting this massive fear is just sort of equating the, the power and the dynamic qualities of womanhood with water. And it's just so powerfully encapsulated in, in those shots. So um, I love uh, the really long panoramic shots also, like throughout, yeah. especially during the riot like oh, yeah. that it, it felt like it felt very classic like it felt like every sort of joke scene not joke but like more playful scene in a um, I'm thinking about singing in the rain here but also in some of the other films where you sort of see like the behind the scenes of what's happening in a Hollywood set and it's like here's all of this background like the background action in every single one of his long scenes was stunning mm -hmm. to me like I just wanted to go back and watch it like a hundred more times and pick out every single person who was in the background yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from, you know, this is a very, he's been open about this being a somewhat autobiographical story for him. And I think that camera being placed in the center of a home and just sort of, you know, soaking up the sounds of a neighborhood and the house and the normal things that go on in this, you know, family's life uh, speaks to his memory and mm -hmm. just living in his own memories and sort of bringing that to life. And what better way to do that than just literally plopping the audience in the center of, you know, the home life he might mm -hmm. remember and the city that he might remember and uh, getting to see it the way he sees it in his mind. I think it's such a beautiful way to, to present that story. Mm-hmm. And then A Star is Born, you spoke to yes. the cinematographer for that, correct? Yes, Matthew Libatique. He, um, he's a great, great cinematographer. He actually, when Star is Born came out, um, he actually had two movies at the top of the box office that weekend. Venom was number one, which he framed, <laughs> and then Star is Born was number two. So he had a really good year. Um, and this is his second Oscar nomination. And this one, you know, most people, when they think about cinematography, think about it being a pretty shot. And I think that this one... Uh, well, there are many pretty shots in this film that also complement theme and get you, especially the concert scenes, how intimately mm -hmm. he films those and brings you on their faces like you're actually in the moment with them. I think uh, this one is a great example of how cinematography is also, lighting is also very important to a cinematographer's mm -hmm. job um, and the way that he plays with theme through light. I mean, he explained to me the constant appearance of those red and green lights throughout the movie mm -hmm. um, as sort of the red representing Jackson's demons and his addiction 
emotions, but also his passions, which we see at the drag bar when Gaga performs. And then, of course, you know, the red and green interplay when they sing Shallow together um, and then contrasted at the end, which he he said the bright white light on Gaga's face when she's looking into the camera, Mm -hmm. he said, represents the pure white light of sobriety that Jackson found. Mm. So I just thought that was beautiful. Yeah, it was like uh, it was great to hear him talk about that. Was there anyone else in this category who anyone you would have liked to see nominated here? Any films you were really struck by this year that didn't make this cut? Uh, I, I really would have liked to have seen Linus Sandgren for First Man, especially for that moon landing shot. I mean, mm-hmm. that was such an incredible sequence. Um, but outside, you know, the the obvious ones, I, I really loved Vox Lux uh, last year. I mean, Lol Crowley um, for that mo- framed that movie in a really, really interesting way. Um, that's that's another just really visually striking film that I think everybody should should see. Um, but so I, I mean, that one was never really in the race to begin with. But that's mm-hmm. just a personal pick of mine. That was one of my favorite shot films of last year. What um, what can you tell me in terms of this category and the sort of like historically, like is there any sort of type of film that usually wins for cinematography? Where or what's your prediction? Where do you think this is going to go? Uh, it, it's tough to say with the technical categories because I think when voting extends beyond the branches, because all the branches, um, only the branches vote on the nominees for the individual categories, and then it opens up to the whole academy. So when you open it up to a broader group who is not maybe as familiar with the technical craft aspects as the cinematographers voting on nominations are, um, I think a lot of the time people will just pick the prettiest images mm-hmm. or the most visually striking film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, or if there's been you know, a big news story about the actual technical craft that went into it, of course, the Academy members are going to be more in tune with that. But I think here, uh, Roma sort of represents both ends of that. You know, yeah. um, it's technical achievement and it's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful filmmaking uh, that really complements the, the story, too. So I think uh, Roma might, might walk <laughs> away with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm kind of personally pulling for... I don't know. It's hard to pick between those three that I talked about, but uh, I, so I can't say who I'm personally pulling for. But I think Roma, Roma's going to win. I, I feel like there's a a good shot there, and also because it feels so much like a film that he embodied every single moment of, like yeah. what is his, and you know. And while I think he is by far the front runner for director, I don't think it would be surprising to see that reflected here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, film editing. Let's talk some more about film editing. Um, We've got Black Klansman, uh, Barry Alexander Brown, Bohemian Rhapsody, John Ottman, The Favorite. Is this the same Yorgos or is this a different Yorgos? It is a different. I think it is a different. Yorgos, Mavro Sardis, sorry for completely butchering that. Um, Green Book, Patrick J. Don Vito, and Vice, Hank Corwin. Um, take me through which of those you think are really the standouts, what are the kind of like moments you most thought about when thinking about why they are nominated for film editing. So Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, uh, despite the controversy, I think is really reaching a wide uh, range of voters here. Um, and I think particularly due to the Live Aid scene, um, it's of course the mm. one that's on everyone's mind. I mean, you know, I think this film's reach was really exemplified uh, over the weekend. Mindy Kaling tweeted the other day about how the scene made her feel when it cut back to Freddie Mercury's mom watching him on TV. So there's a lot of little emotional notes in this movie that I think are really re- making it resonate uh, across the board. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, you look at the kind of broad support that this movie is getting, I think a lot of it is attributed to that scene and how it is sort of cut together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that movie just won the uh, Ace Eddie Award, I believe, um, okay. from the uh, Editors Guild. So I think, yeah, that um, I, I think that that has a strong chance of winning here, too. Who do you think are the other standouts? I would say probably Black Klansman, Vice. Of course, yeah. Both of those felt like they were... So the structure and how even like individual scenes, but the the film as a whole came together, um, I can imagine yeah. was so key in the editing process. Yes, um, Black Klansman in particular. I mean that ending that moves from those really kinetic shots of the race to sort of stop the bomb that normally in any other Hollywood movie would result in this sort of really uh, joyous celebration. But Spike Lee and and Barry Alexander Brown don't really let us off the hook because. You know, those those moments are then contrasted with that 
really striking incorporation of the real life footage from mm-hmm. Charlottesville, um, the footage of Trump's statement on that incident, and then that you know upside down American flag before the credits, um, and that has to be. It's just one of the most powerful editing decisions of last year because, you know, uh, I think they're trying to say that one victory against, you know, uh, the Klan in this film didn't really fix race relations and where there's still a lot of work to do and it takes more work because the evil continues and those final edited shots of this film communicate that really perfectly. So I think the film should win for that alone. That's my personal winner here. Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I thought, you know, it's interesting looking at this list. There were two things in here that kind of stood out for me. One was, again, going back to what you were saying earlier about uh, Stars Born and Vox Lux and the other ones, we saw a lot of like concert scenes and footage. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we, I think we talked about this earlier in the year on another podcast where we were talking about music and sort of musical films and songs, how I feel like the realism of concerts were like really brought to bear this year. Like we saw in so many, like all of those films have scenes that feel so true to a live concert and to that experience and to being a like that sort of behind the scenes like MTV making the concert sort of vibe but like in a very realistic way um, and how much in a similar way for Black Klansman and Vice I feel like that the way that editing is used in documentaries and documentary nonfiction storytelling it's interesting mm-hmm. to kind of see that those start to come together a little bit more like where you can see a real consciousness to how not just the script and the performance but the way that all of those scenes are cut together and the how quickly it is or the juxtaposition of different scenes like in Black Klan's with the long juxtaposition of Harry Belafonte scene with the scene with the Klan and you know initiation mm-hmm. yeah. um, so much of that also seems to be seeping into how fast documentaries move now um, and it's interesting to kind of see all that come together here Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I never really thought about it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, these are good. Interesting to see. Um, and then let's let's talk about costume design, which I know is is a passion, and I, you've talked to a couple <laughs> of the different people in this category. Do you want to yes. go ahead and just take us through the category and who um, who is nominated and and what we're most excited about? Yeah, so we have um, the nominees uh, for Ballad of Buster Scruggs. We have Mary Zoffries, uh, Black Panther, Ruth E. Carter, of course, uh, the favorite, Sandy Powell. Um, also, Sandy also did the costumes for Mary Poppins Returns. She's nominated here again. And then Alexandra Byrne for Mary Queen of Scots. Um, and I think, you know, here it might be a race between uh, Ruth Carter and Sandy Powell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for very different reasons, I think, you know, Ruth... She she's such a, a delight to talk to. She um, she really pushed the craft very far here. She went deep into you know African inspiration using ideas from tribes all over the continent, and then also fused them with really futuristic tech-inspired elements. Um, and and I think I just think it's so interesting. It's such an interesting job for her because so much of Ruth's past work is really rooted in inspiration from the history of the black experience and she really dug deep to sort of fuse that knowledge with and her passion for research with the future and um, somehow managed to make something as iconic as Marvel which is a brand that is known for having a lot of control over its image and making something that feels really unique to her as mm-hmm. an artist really putting her stamp on it and that's so hard to do with you know a brand that's so established um, as Marvel and I think she really made something special here so I think this could be uh, her year to win. Do you think Sandy Powell has to worry about splitting her own vote between the favorite and Mary Poppins returns? <laughs> um, I, 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 I think in um, in any other category with someone else, maybe yes. But here, I, I think that you know uh, her work for Mary Poppins Returns is maybe not getting as much traction mm-hmm. as as the favorite is. Um, you know, like I said, it's hard for me to uh, distinguish between Sandy and Ruth. Uh, they're both kind of my personal favorites in this category. And Sandy is, she's also very, very fun to talk to in this film. Uh, what surprised me about this, though, is that this film, she told me it really pushed her outside of her comfort zone, which is hard to do for someone who has 12 Oscar nominations. Right. Uh, she said that Yorgos would ask the craftspeople to sort of leave the set so she wasn't around for actual shooting and, and touch-ups during filming, uh, so which made her nervous. Um, so, 
but this film she she called it her punk rock uh exploration it's her punk rock version of the traditional period film because she used you know materials that were inaccurate for the period but enhanced the feel of the film she did it on a really low budget um she just went shopping at markets next to her home in the uk found some old jeans at thrift stores i think um that she just cut up to make the kitchen staff's uniforms so she really uh, pushed herself i think uh, a little bit more beyond her comfort zone than maybe she did with mary poppins returns which i'm assuming because it's Disney, she had a bigger budget. Mm-hmm. She was more in her element there. So I think technically, I don't want to speak for her, but I think if I'm gauging from the outside, she probably technically had to push herself into a new skill set for uh, the favorite more so than Mary Poppins. We're going to hear more from your interview with Sandy um, at the end of this podcast. And, and we also have some of you talking to Ruth. Um, but before we do that, were there any any films that you expected to be in this category that you didn't see? Any surprises or snubs um, for costume design overall? Uh, you know, with how many period films come and go every year, I mean, I think that there's always a few that we can look at and say maybe that one should have uh, gone in here. But I, I think I want to shine a light again on on Vox Lux. I think that Natalie Portman's pop star transformation was just so incredible and the costumes that she wears by... Um, uh, I believe her name is Carrie Carrie Lee Doris, um, and I mean she's wearing these incredible elaborate outfits that like you know skin tight uh, crystal bodysuit with those you know bird feathers, mm-hmm. and it's it's that, that it, it's costume incredible. and the I did not enjoy that film, but I <laughs> but the look of it and Natalie Portman's look, especially in those final concert sequences, was so outstanding and so stunning. Mm-hmm that I could have stared at it for like another three hours. I just deeply did not want to watch that film again, especially the beginning of it, but um, that's fair. Uh, Any predictions um, beyond sort of like your favorites? Like who do you, like if, if Ruth and Sandy are probably the standouts here, who do you have a prediction of who you think is going to win? Yeah, I mean, extravagant period costumes are usually the big winner here more often than, than not. If if it's a period film, it wins. Um, even if the film was maybe not reviewed as mm. enthusiastically or got many other nominations, there's a lot of just one-off um, nominations here, but and, and wins here, actually. But, uh, you know, Black Panther and The Favorite both have multiple, multiple, multiple nominations. So I think those are the two that people are going to be looking at. Um, and I think... Uh, I think, you know, because there's a lot of um, potentially historic things that would happen if Ruth uh, won. So I think uh, the Academy might lean toward her um, just because she is so likable and she is sort of out there um, doing every interview for this uh, and really campaigning hard. Uh, So I think that uh, Ruth could potentially uh, win here. But I mean, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if even something like Mary Queen of Scots won just because that is such a showy, elaborate uh, period film. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's more traditional again than the favorite. So, you know, the Academy likes a good traditional period drama. So Mary Queen of Scots could sneak in there too. Interesting. Okay. Joey, you spoke to Ruth on the phone. Uh, tell me more about what we're going to hear from her. Yeah, Ruth is always, she's she's wonderful to talk to. She's very lively and exciting. Um, and she was really excited about the work that she did on Angela Bassett's character, Ramonda. Um, there was a lot of intricate work that went in here. Um, and she said that she put so much work into it uh, that when she unboxed the item that she's going to be talking about in this clip, finally, after so long, it she said it felt like Christmas morning. That's how much work she had put into it. So That's great. Uh, this is Ruth Carter talking about the costume design for Black Panther. In the comics, we know that Ramonda is of the Zulu tribe, and she wears an Ishikolo. The Ishikolo is the married woman's hat. The married woman's hat is a South African um, traditional custom hat that's shaped. It has a cylindrical shape. And for uh, for me, my story was if Ramonda uh, is the queen, and this is a forward-thinking nation and they're more technically technologically advanced than the rest of the world then her crown would have would would mirror that uh, advancement and she would have the best um, qualified you know computer uh, technicians building you know her crown and it could have you know a lot of story within that 
that, you know, you know, it's perfectly round or it has, you know, a, a point that faces east or something, you know. So we 3D printed it because that was the wow. best way to get a perfectly round uh, cylindrical shape for her for her headpiece. And we also 3D printed her collar piece. I call it her shoulder mantle. And um, the shoulder mantle shape is a very large shape. And I, I really loved it because I felt like we would unmistakably um, know her as the queen um, at the Warrior Falls amongst all of the other tribesmen and all of the other uh, leaders uh, um, that she would still stand out amongst them as their queen with that Ishikolo and that shoulder mantle, but it looked heavy. So I researched African lace and picked one that I liked and gave that to our computer designer. And she took the lace and manipulated it so that when we 3D printed it, it, it felt like it was this, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, uh, this beautiful crustacean, you know, this beautiful tools um, piece that, you know, would have been, you know, carefully uh, made by the best craftsmen in Wakanda. So I thought that I could marry tradition with the future, and there were so many things that seamlessly kind of went together when you looked at some of the traditional African dress, like the Indabele neck rings were perfectly suited for the Dora to wear on their uniform, and it, and it translated into a futuristic model all on its own, without any manipulation, without anything I needed to do to it. It was just taking it one for one, and, and it, it worked. Mm -hmm. And then it also it was a, we we married a few uh, technologically advanced um, um, uh, techniques and styles that were even new to us today, like three D printing. You know, that's something that we haven't really ventured into as far as wearable art. So, and it was one thing I really wanted to put into Wakanda because it was fresh and new and I felt like it didn't look so didn't look so techy. You know, the process of making it was. Um, it did look like art. And I was very careful of not uh, getting too much into the technologically advanced type of things like having like they had in the comics having anyone in Wakanda having wearable tech because it, out, it, it dates itself so quickly. So I think that some of the things that we did do, like stamping vibranium on the blankets, um, you know, like leaning into um, a more modern idea with, the, with their clothes, more modern lines, using African style with modern dress, is something that will never go out of style. That was Ruth Carter, the costume designer nominated for an Oscar for her work on Black Panther. When we come back, we're also going to hear from Sandy Powell, the costume designer of The Favorite, and a few more bold takes as we approach the final few weeks uh, before the Oscars. Uh, we'll be right back. This red carpet season, enjoy the award-winning entertainment you love with AT&T's Unlimited and More Premium Plan. Get unlimited data and live TV, plus your choice of one of seven premium add-ons like HBO, Cinemax, or Pandora. Go to att.com unlimited to learn more. After 22 gigabytes per line per month, AT&T may temporarily slow data speeds when the network is busy. Note that video may be limited to standard definition. Choose one premium add-on only. Content, programming, and channels subject to change. Additional usage, speed, limits, and other restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Awardist. I'm Shayna. I'm here with Joey Nolfi uh, from EW. And Joey, one uh, kind of 
tradition we have had on this podcast through the last couple of months is staking out some bold takes, some predictions for what's going to happen, partly because when we start talking about awards so far ahead of where we're going, um, I feel like we have to make some big stands <laughs> if we're going to <laughs> keep doing this every week. Um, but we haven't had you on, so I, I would love to hear from you. What's like one prediction of something that's going to happen that will surprise people either during the broadcast or something, I guess, that could happen between now and then or in terms of who's gonna win an Oscar? What's your, what is your claim for something wild that's going to happen? So uh, I think during the ceremony, I'm, I, it, let me just preface this by saying I'm, I'm pretty sure that anybody, including you, who has seen my desk at EW um, and the literally dozens of photos of Lady Gaga that I have surrounding <laughs> me while I work knows how much I love her and what she means to me. Um, but her losing the Oscar for original song in 2016 has made me a pessimist about her chances at the oh, Oscars since. Okay. So my bold take, and this might just be because I'm, I'm trying to will the universe to act against my pessimism, <laughs> is that um, I, I think that there is actually a real chance for All the Stars by Kendrick and SZA to win mm -hmm. Best Original Song because yes, we've seen Shallow winning at all the major awards shows, but it hasn't really won at the industry awards yet. I mean, you have the Golden Globes, which is 90 journalists, nobody who actually works mm -hmm. in the film industry, Critics' Choice, which is just journalists. There are no real industry competitions yet for original songs, so we don't know how the industry feels about the song yet. And the Grammys, which, you know, that is an industry collective, um, gave the Black Panther soundtrack an Album of the Year nomination, whereas the A Star Is Born soundtrack didn't get that. Um, Interesting. And everybody Hi. might just assume, hey, Shallow is the one to beat, so I'm going to put my vote elsewhere. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen. But, you know, it happened to Gaga <laughs> in the past, so I think everything is on the table. So you are betting <laughs> against Gaga in hopes that you will improve her chances of actually winning by putting that yeah. out into the universe. Okay, there that's go. fair. There Very go. unorthodox. But um, <laughs> I, I see your, I understand, you know, when you really, really love something and you're just like, I'm scared to want this too much, but I want it, but I'm going to try to not jinx it. Um, mm -hmm. That is, that's a bold prediction. I will take that. That's that's solid. <laughs> um, okay, we are we're gonna hear from your interview with Sandy Powell, who, um, as we mentioned, is nominated twice this year for both her costume design for The Favorite and for Mary Poppins Returns, uh, which is not surprising because she has been nominated 12 times for an Oscar and won three. One for a film you might have heard of called Shakespeare in Love. Um, also The Aviator, The Young Victoria. She's worked extensively with Martin Scorsese and Todd Haynes. She did the costumes for Carol. Um, and you had a chance to talk with her. Um, I think the interview really speaks for itself. You got a chance to really like cover a lot of ground with her. So uh, anything else you wanna say about it before we kick it to you and Sandy? Uh, I just think that, you know, she did a great job, uh, not only, you know, the costume designers are storytellers too, and she did a really great job of, uh, again, enhancing the themes and telling the story on her own terms. And I particularly liked how she uh, sort of played with gender um, mm -hmm. in this film, mm -hmm. so. All right, here's Sandy Powell, the costume designer from The Favorite. Well, Yorgos, I know that I had read a quote from him that he said that he wanted the audiences to sort of realize how few things have changed from the world of these women to now. So did like yeah. in using that and like stripping, you know, these things of the colors and, and paring things down, um, and using sort of contemporary fabrics, um, to, yeah. did, did you, do you think that that sort of also complemented that I thematically? Think it did. I think it helped. I think, because I think it didn't distract, you know, mm -hmm. I think if, 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 it, if it was all like, you know, gilded, to the nines and glittery and sparkly and brilliant, all that sort of stuff that we're used to seeing in, in, in incredibly, you know, other, you know, beautiful films. I think that would have taken from the sort of contemporary, the modern approach that, that Yorgos had. And, and when you listen to the dialogue, is very contemporary. And, and actually, you know, the themes are very contemporary. And I think if it had been sort of dressed up as two period it would have been a distraction and actually I, I didn't want any of that to get in the way i wanted it to be sort of pared down so that really what we see are the, are the people and the intrigues and the and the, and the, and the plotting and the politics 
Hmm. Is it strange to you to be working under those sort of parameters, though? Because when, like you're saying, when people think period, they think extravagance. And this is, well, I do think it's extravagant in some ways. It's just not extravagant in what yes. people but are expecting. Way. No, but I think it's great. I mean, that's, that, that's surely, that, that's your aim, is to, is to sort of surprise people and not give them what, they, what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. And it also, I mean, I, you know, and I also, also, it's, it's more interesting for me as a designer to be doing something different. Yeah, you know, I've done, I've done the, the, the you know, the big sumptuous glitzy period stuff, and <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I will do it again. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I really enjoy it, but I also enjoy doing the opposite, the mm-hmm. punk version. Well, I read that you had said that you. Um, like what you were saying before about that the cuts are historically correct um, and that there's not a lot of accurate historical detail, but you did use, like, I think you said African prints and more contemporary yeah, fabrics. So so yeah, what yeah. can you give more examples of, like, those types of, well, you know? The African, prints aren't, the African prints aren't the obvious ones that you see, for instance, in um, Black Panther, do you know what I mean? Or, right. or, you know, the brightly colored African prints. But I used the same African fabrics, but they were sort of like black on black or white on white. So a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the fabrics of the dresses um, have got texture. They've got texture and um, this sort of like damasky print textures. And these are fabrics, they are African fabrics um, purchased from where I live in Brixton, which is, uh, you know, traditionally very um, West Indian, um, Caribbean area, um, and where you buy all those fabrics from. And I, I purchased all those fabrics, and they're relatively inexpensive fabrics. So that's, you know, that's completely, you know, not particularly accurate for the period. Then I also didn't use any lace at all. I just used um, some laser cut fabric that I found, ready, mm-hmm. ready made again, um, which is a very contemporary sort of way of treating fabric. Yeah. So there's no lace, there's laser cutting. I think that's about it, really. And the rest of it is, and I, the jewellery I just paired right down to pearls. There's mm-hmm. not a ton of jewellery and everybody just wears the same. Mm. What would you say is maybe the strangest or the newest contemporary fabric that you use that might surprise people? <laughs> Probably the laser cut vinyl mm. as trim, yeah. Well, I mean, in, you, yeah, I mean, obviously, laser cut fabric is not it's not a strange fabric, but it's strange to use it in this context in a sort of early eighteenth century. Yeah, period film. Yeah, laser and period film does not <laughs> doesn't necessarily yeah. make the connection in the mind. No. Um, but I saw that that the kitchen staff costumes are made from old jeans. Oh. Have you ever done anything like that before? Um, hmm, probably. I'll have to think, though. I mean, I like to use, I like to do, use surprising things. I, I mean, I do actually like to use an unconventional fabric. I have used African print fabrics. I've used colored African print fabrics in Victorian dresses because mm. surprisingly some of the patterns work well for Victorian and nobody's really questioned it. <laughs> I've, I've done that in films to look. Um, I think even in the Young Victoria, I used African print fabric, mm, mm. and that was a, that was a period film that was meant to look realistic. Yeah, I mean the fact is you have no choice; you have to use contemporary fabrics because we can't we can't buy anything that resembles. Well, there is you know fabrics made two, three, four, five hundred years ago that mm. don't exist. Mm. And I think I think the nice thing is, I mean, sort of on the whole, we're not making documentaries; oh, we're sort of <laughs> making pieces of entertainment, right? And um, you know it has to it has to work within the context. Mm-hmm. And it works so well. And I think that um, Emma's costumes really spoke to me too. They tell such an incredible story from when she arrives, you know, falling yeah. into the mud all the way through to the end. So, what was the story that you were trying to tell through her clothing? Well, I mean, her, I mean, she does have a trajectory. I mean, you know, you know, she does. When, when 
when she arrived, she's wearing something that was nice once because she was a lady once and they fell on the family, fell on hard times. So I'm, I'm assuming she, she wears something that she's been wearing for quite a while and then it gets completely covered in mud. So then she arrives and then she's given her job as one of the, the lower levels in the kitchen. So she gets the same sort of uniform as the rest of the kitchen staff in the den. But then as she quickly works her way up the social ladder, she then becomes a lady in waiting, which is predominantly black, which is what I put some of the other ladies in waiting in in the court when she's a lady in waiting in the queen. And then she becomes a lady, lady and then she goes into the black and white. So she wears more white in the, in the costume, the same as Lady Sarah and the other courtiers. And then at the end, when she's really losing it, um, and it, it's, she, I sort of wanted to give her that sort of the vulgarity of the nouveau riche. Yeah. And her dresses then get just a little bit more older, a little bit more showy. I mean, there's more pattern involved in hers. There's the black and white stripes and everything. I just wanted to do it subtly. I mean, not really outrageously. Again, I didn't want to sort of pile on the decoration because I haven't done that with any of them. But I wanted her to stand out from everybody else as sort of like trying too hard. And the men's costumes too. Um, I mean, the things that Nicholas wears are so fabulous. That red, I think it's velvet, the coat that Joe Alwyn wears. I mean, it's just, it's all so gorgeous. So what was your approach to why you wanted to dress the men with like a flamboyant? Too. Well, it was part, it, partly it, it, it was actually how they looked in the period, but also Yorgos specifically said that he wanted the women to not be or to have natural, you know, looking faces and hair. He really didn't want them to look like they were got up every day and went to hair and makeup for mm. hours. Um, and he wanted them to have a sort of a natural raw look about them, you know, unmade up, and it, and the hair to have a sort of naturalness to it. Um, apart from the scenes like the ball scene, when which would have been an excuse to wear makeup and yeah. stuff, but he wanted the men, on the other hand, to be the sort of um, ridiculous-looking peacocks, really. <laughs> um, you know, and it's it's sort of it's sort of a lovely reversal because normally, you know, normally in a film, normally films are filled with men, mm-hmm. and then the women are the decoration in the background. Yeah. Um, I've done many of those. And um, it was quite nice for it to be reversed this time, where the women are the the, the center of the film and the men are the sort of the uh, decoration in the background. Thank you, Sandy Powell and Ruth Carter, for talking with EW. Thank you, Joey, for talking with Sandy and Ruth and for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much, Shana, for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's been great having you. Great to kind of dig into all of the beautiful trade work and craft that is Uh, underlying all of these amazing films we've been talking about. Uh, For complete awardist coverage, you can go to EW.com, also to the magazine. We'll be back next week with more detailed predictions for the Oscars and what is going to happen on the Oscars broadcast. If you have been enjoying listening to the awardist, please subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. While you're at it, check out our TV Critics new podcast, Best of Shows, with Kristen Baldwin and Darren Franich. This week, they talked to Lance Ruddick about the new show, Corporate. Plus, they dig into One Day at a Time, what's happening with CBS's Bull after all the controversy around Michael Weatherly. It's great. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you, as always, for joining us here at The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly.